0: But first take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. Verse 2. There is the duty and the means unto that end. Although repentance and confession be not the procuring cause of God's grace and love, from whence alone our healing or recovery proceeds, yet are they required in the appointed method of God's dispensing his grace. It must be insisted upon that the Christian's concurrence with the divine will by no means warrants the horrible conclusion that he is entitled to divide the honors with God. How could this possibly be, seeing that if he does what he is bidden, he remains but an unprofitable servant? How could it be when to whatever extent he does improve the means it is only the power of divine grace? which so enabled him, how could it be, when he is most sensible in himself, that far more of failure than success attends his efforts? No, when the redeemed have safely crossed the Jordan, and are safely landed on the shores of the heavenly Canaan, they will exclaim with one accord, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy, for thy truth's sake. Psalm one fifteen one. To sum up, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints in the pursuit and practice of holiness as it is set forth in God's word provides no shelter for either laziness or licentiousness. It supplies no encouragement for us to take our regeneration and glorification for granted, but bids us give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Second Peter 1, 10 Exhortations and threatenings are not made unto us as those already assured of final perseverance, but as those who are called to the use of means for the establishment of our souls in the ways of obedience, being annexed to those ways of grace and peace which God calls his saints unto. Perseverance consists in a continual exercise of spiritual graces in the saints. And exhortations are the divinely appointed means for stirring those graces into action and for a further increase of them. Therefore, those preachers who do not press upon the Lord's people the discharge of their duties and are remiss in warning and admonishing them fail grievously at one of the most vital points in the charge committed to them. 7. By enforcing the threatenings of Scripture... The one with whom we have to do is ineffably holy, and therefore does he hate sin wherever it is found. He will not ignore sin in his own children when it is unjudged and unconfessed any more than he will in those who are the children of the devil. The Pope and his underlings may traffic in their vile indulgences and special dispensations, but the Lord God never lowers his standard, and even those in Christ are not exempted from bitter consequences if they pursue a course of folly. But God is also merciful and faithful, and therefore he threatens before he punishes and warns before he smites. In his word, he has described those ways which lead to disaster and destruction, that we may shun them. Yet those who deliberately follow them may know for certain that they shall receive the due reward of their defiance. It is therefore incumbent upon the minister of the gospel to press the divine threatenings, as it is the part of wisdom for his hearers or readers to take the same to heart. If ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6.15 And that servant which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. Luke 12.47 Spoken to Peter 5.41 Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. John five fourteen. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast into the fire, and they are burned. John fifteen six, spoken to the eleven apostles. For If we live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Romans 8.13 Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life. Everlasting. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Have such passages as these been given due place in the preachings and writings of the Orthodox during the past fifty years? No indeed. Why? There are three particular passages which claim a fuller notice from us in this connection, passages which are among the most solemn and frightful to be found in all the word of God, yet which are nevertheless addressed immediately unto the people of God. Before citing the same, we would preface our remarks upon them with this general observation. They have not received the attention they ought in the practical ministrations of God's servants. The minister of the gospel has only discharged half his duty when he clears these verses of the false glosses which his opponents have placed upon them. It is quite true that Arminians have made an altogether unwarrantable and wrong use of them. But probably God suffered his enemies to thereby bring them into prominent notice because his friends ignored them. The Christian teacher must not only show there is no conflict between these passages and such verses as John 10.28 and Philippians 1.6, but he must also bring out their positive meaning and the solemn bearing which they have upon Christians themselves. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth a blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is... To be burned. Hebrews 6:4 through 8. Those words are addressed to holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Chapter 3, verse 1, and their connection is as follows. In chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, the apostle had reproved the Hebrews for being slow in their apprehension of the truth and in walking suitably thereto. And after the exhortation of chapter 6, 1 through 3, he warns them of the awful danger of continuing in a slothful state. 4. It is impossible, but it may be objected. Surely it is not the intention of our Heavenly Father to terrorize his own dear children. No, certainly not. Yet he would have them suitably affected thereby. Though such threatenings are not designed to work in Christians a fear of damnation, yet they should beget in them a holy care and diligence of avoiding the evils denounced. There is no more incongruity between a Christian's being comforted by the divine promises and alarmed by the divine threatenings than there is between his living a life of joyful confidence in God and also one of humble dependence upon him. He must distinguish between things that differ. There is a fear of caution as well as of distrust. A fear that produces carefulness and watchfulness, as well as one which fills with anxiety. There is a vast difference between a thing that is meant to weaken the security of the flesh and the confidence that faith has in Christ. Assurance of perseverance is quite consistent with and ought ever to be accompanied by fear and trembling. Philippians 2, 12, and 13. In his opening remarks on Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, John Owen said, It is a needful and wholesome commendation, denunciation, duly to be considered by all professors of the gospel. And in the course of his masterly exposition, pointed out, for not to proceed in the way of the gospel and obedience thereto, is an untoward entrance into a total relinquishment of the one and the other. That They therefore may be acquainted with the danger hereof, and be stirred up to avoid that danger. The apostle gives them an account of those who, after a profession of the gospel, beginning at a non-proficiency under it, do end in apostasy from it. And we may see that the severest combinations are not only useful in the preaching of the gospel, but exceeding necessary towards persons that are observed to be slothful in their profession. Scripture nowhere teaches that the saint is so secure that he needs not to be wary of himself, nor unmindful of the defection of those who for a time Seemed to run well. Another of the Puritans said on this passage, Certainly all of us should stand in fear of this heavy judgment of being given up to perish by our apostasy to an obstinate heart, never to reconcile ourselves by repentance, even the children of God, for he proposeth it to them. The apostle saith, it is impossible they should be saved, because it is impossible they should repent. This is a fearful state, and yet, as fearful as it is, it is not unusual. It is a thing we see often in some that have made a savory profession of the name of God, and afterwards have been blasted. Oh, then, you that have begun and have had a taste of the ways of God, and to walk closely with Him, you should lay this to heart. Therefore this is propounded to believers, that they should keep at a very great distance from such a judgment, lest we grow to such an impenitent state as to be given up to a reprobate mind and vile affections. Thomas Manton the best preventative is a conscience kept tender of sin, which mourns over and confesses to God our transgressions, and seeks grace to mortify our lusts. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye? Shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden under foot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, The Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.26-31 It is outside our present design to give an exposition of these verses, which we did when going through that epistle, as we shall not now expose the Arminian errors thereon, which we hope to very shortly. Rather, do we now direct attention unto them as another example of the fearful threatenings which are directly addressed to Christians, and which it is madness and not wisdom to scoff at the scope of the above passage is easily grasped hebrews 10:23 gives an exhortation verses 24 and 25 announce the means of continuing in that profession while verses 26 through 31 declare what will befall those who relinquish the truth in his comments john owen points out the apostle puts himself among them, if we sin, etc., as is his manner in combinations, both to show that there is no respect of persons in this matter, but that those, Who had equally sinned shall be equally punished, and to take off all appearances of severity towards them, seeing he speaks nothing of this nature, but on such suppositions as wherein if he were himself concerned, he pronounceth it against himself also. The word willingly signifies of choice without surprisal, compulsion, or fear. If a voluntary relinquishment of the profession of the gospel and the duties of it be the highest sin, and be attended with the height of wrath and punishment, we ought earnestly to watch against everything that inclineth or disposeth us thereto. John Owen concluded his remarks on these verses by saying, This therefore is a passage of holy writ, which is much to be considered, especially in these days wherein we live, wherein men are apt to grow cold and careless in this profession, and to decline gradually from what they had attained unto. To be useful in such a season it was first written, and it belongs unto us no less than unto them to whom it was first originally sent. And we live in days wherein the security and contempt of God, the despite of the Lord Christ and His Spirit, are come to the full so as to justify the truth that we have insisted on. If the pressing of this passage on the attention of all professing Christians was deemed so necessary in the palmy days of the Puritans, how much more so in the dark times in which our lot is cast. How woefully remiss then are those preachers who not only fail to devote a whole sermon to these verses, but who never so much as quote them from one year's end to another, except it be to refute the Arminians in such a manner that empty professors are made to believe there is nothing for them to fear. But it is happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Second 2 Peter 2:20 through 22. At the close of his remarks on this passage, Matthew Henry says if the Scriptures give such an account of Christianity on the one hand and of sin on the other as we have in these verses, we certainly ought highly to approve of the former and persevere therein because it is a way of righteousness and a holy commandment and to loathe and keep at the greatest distance from the latter because it is set forth as offensive and abominable. Far better never to make a profession than make a fair one and then sully and repudiate it. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy. Proverbs 29, 1. The solemn threatenings of scripture are so many discoveries to the church in particular, and to the world in general, of the severity of God against sin, and that he adjudges them worthy of eternal destruction who persist therein. If professing Christians turn a deaf ear to exhortations, admonitions, and warnings, if they steel their hearts against entreaties and threatenings and determine to follow a course of self-will and self-pleasing, they place themselves beyond the hope of mercy. It is therefore the imperative duty of the servant of Christ. To faithfully warn God's people of the fearful danger of backsliding and of what awaits them if they remain in that state. To definitely point out the connection which God has established between sin and punishment, between apostasy and damnation, so that a holy fear may be instilled to preserve them from making shipwreck of the faith and to prevent carnal professors from indulging the vain hope of once in grace always in grace eight by holding up the reward many preachers have failed to do so allowing the fear of man to withhold from god's children a portion of their necessary bread because certain enemies of the truth have arrested this subject they deemed it wisest to be silent thereon. Because papists have grievously perverted the teaching of Scripture upon rewards, insidiously bringing in their lie of creature merit at this point, not a few Protestants have been chary of preaching thereon, lest they be charged with leaning toward Romanism. Rather, should this very abuse move them to be the more diligent and zealous in presenting their right and true meaning and use, threatenings and rewards, does not the one naturally suggest the other, the former to act as deterrence, the latter as stimulants, deterrence against evil doing stimulants, or incentives unto the discharge of duty, but if the one has been shelved in the pulpit, the other has received scant attention, even in orthodox quarters. We can but briefly touch upon the subject here, but hope to devote a separate article to it in the next section. In Scripture, eternal life is presented both as a gift and as a reward, the reward of perseverance. To some it may appear that such terms and concepts are mutually opposed. Yet, is not prayer both a privilege and a duty? Is not the natural man startled when he finds that God bids his people to rejoice with trembling? What a seeming paradox! The apparent difficulty is removed when it is seen that the rewards which God has promised his people are not those of justice but of bounty, that they are not a proportioned remuneration or return for the duties which we perform or the services we have rendered, but the end to which our obedience is suited. Thus the rewards proposed unto us by God are not calculated to work in his people a legal spirit, but are designed to support our hearts under the self-denials to which we are called, to cheer us amid the sufferings we encounter for Christ's sake, and to stir us to acts of obedience meet for what is promised. Certainly Moses was inspired by no mercenary spirit when he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Hebrews 11.26 That eternal life and glory is set forth in God's word as the reward and end of perseverance which await all faithful Christians is clear from Hebrews 10.35 to cite no other passages now. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. On those words, Matthew Henry said, He exhorts them not to cast away their confidence, that is, their holy courage and boldness, but to hold fast the profession for which they had suffered so much before, and borne those sufferings so well. Second, he encourages them to this by assuring them that the reward of their holy confidence is very great. It carries a present reward in it in holy peace and joy and much of God's presence and power visited upon them and it shall have a great recompense of reward hereafter. While the Christian sincerely endeavours to walk obediently and mix faith with God's promises, the Spirit comforts and witnesses with His Spirit that He is a child of God. But when He becomes careless of duty and neglects the means of grace, He not only withholds His witness, but suffers the threatenings of Scripture to so lay hold of Him that Psalm 38, 2 and Three becomes his experiences. Nine, by insisting on steadfastness. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Hebrews 10.23 Press forward along the path of holiness, no matter what obstacles and opposition you meet with. Your very safety depends upon it. For if you deny the faith either by words or actions, you are worse than an infidel who never professed it. The very fact that we are here bidden to hold fast, our Christian profession implies that it is no easy task assigned us, that there are difficulties to be overcome, which call for the putting forth of our utmost strength and endeavors in the defense and furtherance of it, without wavering means, with unvarying and unflinching constancy. Sin is never seeking to vanquish the Christian. The world is ever endeavouring to draw him back into its seductive embraces. The devil, like a roaring lion, is ever waiting to devour him. Therefore, the call to him is, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The duties he has assigned. 1 Corinthians 15 58. The need for pressing such exhortations as the above appears from the solemn warning addressed to those whom the Apostle calls beloved in Second Peter 3.17. Beware, lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. Upon this, Matthew Henry says, We are in great danger of being seduced and turned away from the truth. Many who have the scriptures and read them do not understand what they read, and too many of those who have a right understanding of the sense and meaning of the word are not established in the belief of the truth, and all these are liable to fall into error. Few attain to the knowledge and acknowledgment of doctrinal Christianity, and fewer find so as to keep in the way of practical godliness, which is the narrow way which only leadeth unto life. There must be a great deal of self-denial and suspicion of ourselves, and submitting to the authority of Christ Jesus our great prophet. Before we can heartily receive all the truths of the gospel, and therefore we are in great danger of rejecting the truth. Ministers of Christ then need to insist much upon the imperativeness of steadfastness and constancy. By withholding from backsliders the comfort of the truth of eternal security. After all that has been said under the previous heads, there is little need for us to enlarge upon this point. Any preacher who encourages the slothful and the undutiful is doing great harm to souls. To tell those who have deserted the paths of righteousness that because they once believed in Christ, all will come out well with them in the end is to put a premium on their carnality. To assure those who have forsaken the means of grace and gone back again into the world that because they formerly made a credible profession, God will recover and restore them is to say what scripture nowhere warrants. A gripping purgative and not rich in savory viands is what is needed by one whose system is out of order. The divine threatenings and not the promises need to be pressed upon those who are following the desires and devices of their own hearts. Only by heeding the ten things mentioned in these sections is the precious truth of the eternal security of the saints, safeguarded from profanation. Chapter 9. Its Opposition It has been shown at length in earlier sections that the concept of a total and final apostasy of a regenerated soul is not according to truth. To postulate the eternal destruction of one to whom divine grace has been savingly communicated to the soul is contrary to the whole tenor of the covenant of redemption, to the attributes of God engaged in it, to the design and work of the Redeemer in to the Spirit's mission and his abiding with God's children forever. John 14.16 One who is indwelt by the triune God shall not and cannot so fall from holiness and serve sin as to give himself wholly to its behest authoritative commands. One who has been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son shall never again become the willing subject of Satan. One who has been made the recipient of a supernatural experience of the truth shall never be fatally deceived by the devil's lies. Truth, his will is mutable, but God's promise is unchangeable. His own strength is feeble. But God's power is invincible. His prayers are weak, but Christ's intercession is prevalent. Yet in all ages, this doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints has been opposed and denied. Satan himself believed in the apostasy of Job and had the effrontery to avow it unto Jehovah. Job 1, 8 through 11. We need not be surprised then to find that the supreme imposture of the religious realm repudiates most vehemently this precious truth and pronounces accursed all who hold it. The merit mongers of Rome are inveterately opposed to everything which exalts free grace. Moreover, they who so hotly deny unconditional election, particular redemption, and effectual calling must, in order to be consistent, deny the eternal security of the Christian. Since papists are such rabid sticklers for the free will of fallen man, logically, they must deny the indefectibility of all who are in Christ. If I have, by an act of my own volition, brought myself into a state of grace, then it clearly follows that I am capable of forsaking the same. If the free will of the sinner first inclines him to exercise repentance and faith, then obviously he may relapse into a state of confirmed impenitence and unbelief. But Rome has by no means stood alone in antagonizing this blessed article of the Father. Others who differ widely from her in many other respects have made common cause with her in this. Considerable sections of Protestantism, whole denominations which claim to take the word of God for their sole rule of faith and practice, have also strenuously and bitterly fought against those who maintained this truth. These are what are known as Arminians, for James Arminius or Van Harmon, a Dutch man of the 16th century, was the first man of any prominence in Orthodox circles, who opposed the theology taught by John Calvin, opposed it covertly and slyly and contrary to the most solemn and particular promise and pledge which he gave to the classes, church governing bodies, before he was installed as Professor of Divinity at Leyden in 1602. Since then, for the purpose of theological classification, non-Calvinists and anti-Calvinists have been termed Arminians. The one man who did more than any other to popularize and spread Arminianism in the English-speaking world was John Wesley. We shall now make it our business to examine the attacks which Arminians have made upon this truth of the final perseverance of the saints and the leading arguments they employ to prejudice and overturn it. But let us say at the outset, it is not because we entertain any hope of delivering such a people from their errors that we are now writing still less, that we are prepared to enter the list against them, no, no. It is useless to argue with those whose hearts are set against the truth. Convince the man against his will, and he is of the same opinion still. Moreover, God's eternal truth is infinitely too sacred to be made the matter of carnal debate and wrangling. Rather... It is our design to help those of God's people who have been harassed by the dogs who yapped at their heels and show that their bark is worse than their bite. We write now with the object of delivering the babes from being corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Second Corinthians 11.3 one by misrepresenting and misstating the truth for which we contend it is a favored device of arminians to set up a man of straw and because he is incapable of withstanding their assault pretend to have overthrown the calvinistic tenet itself To caricature a doctrine and then hold up that caricature to ridicule, to falsify a doctrine and then denounce that falsification as a thing of evil is tantamount to acknowledging that they are unable to overthrow the doctrine as it is held and presented by its friends. Yet this is a very practice of which Arminian dialecticians are guilty. They select a single part of our doctrine and then take it up as though it were the whole. They suffer the means from the end and claim we teach that the end will be reached irrespective of the means. They ignore the safeguards by which God has hedged around this part of his truth and which his true servants have ever maintained and then affirm that such a doctrine is injurious, dangerous, inimical to the promotion of practical godliness. In plain language, they seek to terrify the simple by a boogie of their own manufacture. That we have not brought an unjust and unfair charge against Armenians will appear from the following citation. The common doctrine that perseverance requireth and commandeth all saints or believers to be fully persuaded, and this with the greatest and most indubitable certainty of faith, that there is an absolute and utter impossibility, either of a total or a final defection of their faith. That though they shall fall into ten thousand enormities and most abominable sins and lie wallowing in them like a swine in the mire, yet they should remain all the while in an estate of grace, and that God will by a strong hand of irresistible grace bring them off from their sins by repentance before they die. Those were the words of one of the most influential of English Arminians in the palmy days of the Puritans, issuing from the pen of one John Goodwin, a nephew of the pious and eminent expositor Thomas Goodwin. In the light of what we have written in previous sections of this series, few of our readers should have much difficulty in perceiving the sophistry of this miserable shift. No well-instructed scribe of Christ ever set forth the doctrine of the saints' perseverance in any such distorted manner and extravagant terms as the above, yet such is a fair sample of the devices employed by Arminians when engaged in assailing this truth. They detach a single element of it, and then render repugnant their one-sided misrepresentation of the whole." The perseverance which we contend for and which the operations of divine grace effectually provide for and secure is a perseverance of faith and holiness, a continuing steadfast in believing and in bringing forth all the fruits of righteousness. Whereas, as any one can see at a glance, the travesty presented in the above quotation is a preservation in spite of and in the midst of, perseverance in abominable sins, and lie wallowing in them like the swine in the mire that is quite at home in such a filth and content therewith. And yet they shall remain all the while In an estate of grace is a palpable contradiction of terms, for an estate of grace is one of subjection and obedience to God. Again, Goodwin makes out the Calvinist to say in God's name, You that truly believe in my Son, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and therefore are fully persuaded and assured from my will and command given unto you in that behalf, yea, according to the infallible word of truth you have from me, that you cannot possibly know, not by the most horrid sins and abominable practices, that you shall or can commit, fall away either totally or finally from your faith. For in the midst of your foulest actings and courses, there remains a seed in you which is sufficient to make you true believers and to preserve you from falling away finally, that it is impossible you should die in your sins. You that know and are assured that I will, by an irresistible hand, work a perseverance in you, and consequently that you are out of all danger of condemnation, and that heaven and salvation belong unto you, and are as good as yours already, so that nothing but giving of thanks appertains to you. The incongruity of such a fiction should at once be apparent. First, all true saints do not have a firm and comfortable assurance of their perseverance. Many of them are frequently beset by doubts and fears. Second, it is by means of God's promises and precepts, exhortations and threatenings that they are stirred up to the use of those things by which perseverance is wrought and assurance is obtained. Third, no rightly taught saint ever expected his perseverance or the least assurance of it under such a foul supposition as falling into and continuing in horrid sins and abominable practices. Fourth, the promises of eternal security are made to those in whose mind God writes his laws and in whose hearts he places his holy fear, so that they shall not depart from him. They are made to those who hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and who follow the example he has left them. Fifth, so far from nothing but giving of thanks appertaining to them, they are bidden to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, to run with patience the race set before them, to make their calling and election sure by adding to their graces and bringing forth the fruits of righteousness.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.